Hello and welcome to episode number 192 of Turkey Book Talk. Thank you for listening. I'm William Armstrong here in Istanbul. Remember to follow along on Twitter, Instagram or Facebook. In this episode, we hear from Tezcan Gümüş of the University of Melbourne, the author of Turkey's Political Leaders, Authoritarian Tendencies in a Democratic State, published by Edinburgh University Press. This conversation, I believe, is very timely indeed, given the fact that we are publishing less than two weeks before Turkey's critical presidential and parliamentary elections. The book is a very nicely written study showing how almost all key leaders throughout Turkey's multi-party history have demonstrated authoritarian and undemocratic traits. It's not an economic or social history, it's really a history of Turkey's political elites, showing how numerous leaders fostered a culture and system that incentivized authoritarian, personalized rule both in government and within parties, therefore playing a key role in the various failings of Turkey's democratic system. As Gümüş describes it at one point, there is a direct line of strongmen leaders in Turkish political history. The book focuses on major figures like Adnan Menderes, Süleyman Demirel, Bülent Ecevit, Turgut Özal, Tansu Çiller, Necmettin Erbakan and indeed Recep Tayyip Erdogan and it challenges some of these shibboleths around many of these characters. It gives agency back to Turkish political leaders going beyond over-focusing on the military's role or Ankara's position in the broader international equation. It also places the rule of Erdogan in useful context and hopefully will give you much food for thought amid the current election campaign. We discuss all of that in the interview. But before we get started, it's time for me to plead once again. This podcast takes a lot of time and effort to prepare, edit and piece together. And I do need listeners support, your support to be able to keep doing it. Happily, listenership is rising all the time, but unhappily, we saw a bit of a drop in membership numbers in recent months. Since we launched this podcast back in September 2015, we've published almost 200 episodes, providing a platform to researchers and authors of books related to Turkish history, politics, society, literature and the arts. It's incredibly rewarding to put the podcast together and publish an episode every couple of weeks, and I do hope it remains useful for everyone who listens. Turkey Book Talk is completely independent with no institutional links, no sponsorships. It depends 100% on the goodwill of listeners. So if you are in a position where you can support, please consider doing so via Patreon. Consider becoming a Turkey Book Talk member. Joining as a Turkey Book Talk member isn't just a nice thing to do, it also gets you some pretty good extras. Those extras include a terrific discount of 35% off the price of all books published in IB Taurus and Bloomsbury's excellent Turkey and Ottoman history series. Hundreds of Turkey Ottoman history titles published by IB Taurus Bloomsbury are available to Turkey Book Talk members at a 35% discount. As a member you get a special code to use at the online checkout and you can use it to purchase physical books pre-orders or ebooks. Turkey Book Talk members also receive a PDF transcript of every interview via email as soon as the episode is published. You also get PDF transcripts of the entire archive of Turkey Book Talk interviews when you sign up, including many extras that have not previously been published on the podcast. Members also receive an archive of 231 book reviews written by myself, ranging from Turkish and international fiction and poetry to history, politics and journalism related to the Middle East and Europe. And finally, in addition to all that, I send links to a couple of articles related to the subject of the episode in the email that I send out to members upon publication, which is ideal if you want to delve a bit deeper. 
To become a member, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon page and pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 per episode. If you're feeling particularly generous and want to pledge more, then of course you'll be more than welcome. But so long as you pledge $3, €3 or £2.50 or above per episode, membership is entirely at your own discretion. It's inflation proof and there are no prior commitments or strings attached. You'll be free to sign off whenever you want. But enough of all that, let's get on to our conversation now with Tezcan Gumush. The book rattles through Turkey's turbulent history of multi-party politics, which started with the country's first free national election in 1950. That saw the rise of Adnan Menderes and his Democrat Party, the subject of previous Turkey Book Talk episodes, of course. As Prime Minister, Menderes started with bold pledges to democratize the system and give power to the people after the single party era. But in a familiar trajectory, he then went on a steady authoritarian descent throughout the 1950s before being overthrown in a military coup in 1960. I started by asking Tezcan Gumish to take us back to the start of Turkey's multi-party era and to explain how Menderes fits into the framework that he draws up in the book. Adnan Menderes didn't act alone. He was very much supported by Celal Bayar, who was the leader of the Democrat Party before they won the election, and then he sort of he was then elected as the president. And once he vacated that seat, the leadership of the Democrat Party, Adnan Menderes, was chosen. But this was obviously enabled and wanted by Jela Bayar because he, he had a liking for Adnan Menderes and he knew that the party would, would continue on the same line as he had wanted for the party. So they worked throughout that decade through the 50s very much in tandem. And especially when it comes to really hard line policies and actions towards the opposition, so namely Ismet Inan, the Republican People's Party or CHP or JFF, was actually blamed on Jelal Bayer. So he was the one that instigated these a lot of these harsh positions taken by, by the government against the opposition. So Adnan Menes, he, he definitely worked in tandem with Jela Bayar. We have to also understand that the, the core people that, that created Democrat parties, they came from the single party here, from the CHP, and that they broke away from the CHP. But these people were ultimately educated, schooled in politics, or the way to do politics, from the single party itself. So they did not have an understanding of plural politics or democratic politics where you know there's a respect for opposition you will moderate your behavior you you sometimes will have to work with opposition to get things done they sort of come from that so their way of doing politics or understanding politics was what the single party era had like you don't brook any opposition so when they came into power even though it was a democracy they continued to wanting to act in that manner so from the very beginning onwards, they tried to very much marginalize and repress CHB, the main opposition, but also other minor opposition parties as well from the very get-go by confiscating their resources and really trying to disable and disarm the CHB from being a healthy opposition against them. And this also, because of there's a level of personal animosity towards Ismet, you know, so the, this, this very repressive view towards the opposition had a very much a personalised um, aspect to it too. And it, it actually, as the decade went on, it got harsher and harsher and harsher uh, to a point where they were basically taking steps to close down the main opposition party and enact what would be called like a civilian coup. So the Mendes government 
even though they had this very much a strong majority in parliament, they didn't use that majority to liberalise the, the system or further deepen democratic practices and norms. They actually used that power to basically push over any opposition that was against them. And it got, like I said, got to a point to, to such extreme levels in towards the 1960s that political gatherings on the streets were pretty much banned. The number of journalists in jail were excessively high. Media was muzzled. The parliament was virtually closed off to opposition activity. And the streets were closed off to political activity. And so, you know, you, you see a government really taking these steps to, to fortify its rule in government. So there was a personal aspect to that, but there's also something else that you talk about in the book that there was actually a kind of legal structural factor that basically set the parameters for what happened in later decades. And that was the constitution that was created in 1924. So at the start of the single party era under Atatürk, and you say that, quote, the 1924 constitution was shaped by a majoritarian interpretation of government as opposed to a democracy underpinned by a system of rigorous checks and balances. It held that sovereignty was the general will of the nation, which was absolute and divisible. The true representation of the public will was embodied in the National Assembly. This meant that any attempts to limit or curb the powers of the legislature would be equal to restricting the national will, which in turn would limit the sovereignty of the nation. In other words, the constitution failed to provide strong checks and balances to curb the power of elected majorities by society and the judiciary. And once in power, Adnan Menderes took advantage of the majority rule that the 1924 constitution offered. So this does suggest actually a structural problem based in that early Republican era that goes beyond being you know, a problem of individuals. Individuals like Adnan Menderes, Jalal Bayar, were taking advantage of a broader framework that was offered by the 1924 constitution. They didn't reform it in the multi-party era. And it was that that really it placed them within a kind of institutional framework that allowed them or nudged them in an authoritarian direction, basically. What would you say to that kind of critique? Of course. I mean, it enabled that. It allowed for it. But my argument was that the Democrats had an overwhelming majority in parliament. And if they were so democratic, then you would actually reform the constitution to, ref to be democratic, to be plural. And they opted not to do that and to, I guess, to advantage themselves to undertake these very much authoritarian measures against society, against the opposition. So my argument would be that it's not the constitution that shaped their behaviour, it just enabled it. And so this is why they did not reform the constitution to create greater checks on their power. And ultimately, that authoritarian trajectory and economic turbulence that accompanied it throughout the later 1950s led to tremendous turbulence. And that was ultimately put a, put a stop to by the Turkish military intervened in 1960. There was a coup. Menderes was overthrown. The Democrat Party removed from power. But ultimately, once the transition returned to a multi-party system after the coup in the 1960s, the inheritance, really, of Menderes' political legacy came into the hands of Suleiman Demirel. Obviously, your book focuses a lot on Demirel as well, and he's an interesting character. He kind of, in, as I say, inherited the same political legacy, appealed to the same impulses, but obviously was operating in a different environment in the 60s and 70s. And Demirel was perhaps the first non-elite 
major political figure. He was not from the establishment, unlike previous leaders. He really was someone genuinely from a non-traditional background, pretty humble origins, and embodied upward mobility in many ways. He became a kind of figure within the state, and that's how he started to climb the greasy pole. Could you just talk about Demirel and you know the measures that he took throughout his various governments, coalition governments, single-party governments, through the 1960s and 70s, you know, how Demirel also embodied many of these authoritarian impulses, centralising control within his party, centralising power as much as he could in the government. Where does Demirel fit into the picture? Demirel is definitely a larger-than-life character, and he's someone that started from the 60s to 70s, throughout the 80s and 90s as president. So Demirel was a, someone that's stayed around for many, many years. And like you said, you know, going back to his humble origins, he's you know, very much a great example of upward social mobility. He was pretty much one of the first key political leaders in Turkey that was not from that traditional sort of elite base that most politicians had come from pre-Demirel. So in that sense, a very good example of upward social mobility, great political acumen, a cunning fox, as someone I interviewed in Turkey once described him as. So I guess a political animal in that sense. Demirel became the leader of Adalet Parti, so the Justice Party, which was basically a party that was created by former Democrats from the 1950s. It sort of captured the centre-right in the 1960s. But also I have to make, I guess, going back to this this idea of the constitution, I have to also point out that after 1960 coup, the constitution was completely rewritten by the military junta. And it was highly, a very liberal constitution and created very strong checks against the government. The generals did this because they didn't want a repeat of the authoritarianism of the 1950s. So what they did was they wrote the constitution, which was provided heavier, much heavier checks on the executive, but also allowed for a lot of civil civil society activity as well. State institutions like universities were given autonomy and so forth. So in that sense, it was a completely different environment constitutionally from, from the preceding decades, if we're looking going back to the constitution from 1924. So, yes, when Demirak was elected the, the leader of the Adalet Party, he slowly began to, again, monopolise power and, and, and marginalise and, and kick out opponents that could challenge him or were challenging him. Throughout the period, towards 1970, you see you know, numerous people being purged or forced to leave because, uh, because they were their opposition towards Demirak, but yet there's no room to challenge the leader because I guess he had absolute power. So you've got you've got Demirel who's controlling his party. You've also got at the same time in the general political arena the rise of left and right clashes that's becoming more and more increased. So the ideology of socialism. So it's that Cold War era. So he's operating within that, and he's very much entrenched in in that centre right rightist ideology. And he uses, I guess, once he's, he forms a government single handedly in, in 1965, he really uses that power to go after the left and leftists. And really, his party really starts enacting laws to make it hard for small leftist parties like Turkish Turkish Workers' Party from entering parliament. And what this eventually does is that once leftist activists 
realize that the parliament is slowly being closed off to them because of changes of electoral laws. They start taking their action onto the streets. And this then creates a reaction from right-wing activists, which explodes in the cities on the streets with violent clashes. And so throughout this late 60s period, you know, Turkey is, is the beginnings of that political violence that really peaks in the 1970s. My argument is Demir really is an instigator of that political turmoil because of his, uh, I guess, him going after left and left parties at that period. Suleiman Demirel's major rival in the, a lot of the 60s and throughout the 70s in a very turbulent time in Turkish political history was Bülent Ecevit, who sort of rose through the ranks of the CHP, ended up taking over control of the CHP and turned it in a more kind of centre-left direction. And there's quite a lot of nostalgia, I think, for good reason these days about Bülent Ecevit. You know, he's seen as this kind of democratic-spirited figure, cutting against the grain in many ways of a lot of these impulses in Turkish political history towards uh, an ever-developing drift to the right. But as you describe it in the book, he was actually very, very controlling, domineering uh, within the party. And he really kept a very, very tight grip and step-by-step centralized control around himself within the party throughout the 1970s. And you describe him as even autocratic in his way. And he brought a lot of those traits into government whenever he was in government throughout that very fragmented period of coalition government. So could you just talk about Bülent Ecevit and where he fits into the picture from his rise in the CHP in the 1960s, right the way through to the 1980 coup, which basically reset Turkish politics and swept away yeah. many of the old figures? I'll go one step further. Arsene Kalajdjoğlu, who's, who's one of the leading academics in, in Turkey's political sciences, he actually described as a Führer-like leader of his party. So I guess that's even... Um, wow. Uh, yeah. Bilal Ejibit, he was the one that was the architect of the CHP taking this centre-left direction. Workers and peasants and uh, and labourers were always, especially throughout the 70s, very, very central to his politics. And I think this is where the nostalgia would definitely come from. And throughout the 70s, the CHP under his leadership, you know, on, numerous, on a couple of um, elections came out as the number one party, but it just didn't have enough seats to govern on its own. So edge of it, I guess, in that sense, people have a nostalgic nostalgia towards him. And, and I'll give you an example. My parents invited edge of it to their wedding back in the day when they got married in 1976 and sent a telegram to his office, you know, because I guess the working class were all pro Ejibit back back in those days. So, but, you know, but it's when we look at him through a lens where we're trying to understand how democratic he was or or wasn't, you sort of assess him from a different viewpoint. And Ejibit, even though he came into power through intra-party democracy, when he got into power, he actually starts to rewrite, change the constitution, party constitution, which actually removed those pathways that he used to be to get into power. And so those ladders or those that pathway that he used to to win the election, he actually, when he got into power, made sure that that wouldn't happen to him. And that the the secretary general, the position that he was in on the internet, he actually minimized its role. So it lessened, the, it lessened the power of that seat when he became the party chairman. So he was a very shrewd actor in that sense. And as throughout the 70s went on, I guess I wouldn't call it paranoia, but he was very much obsessed with 
maintain his grip on party leadership where he went to extreme lengths where he would have people gather intelligence on local branches that was seen as critical of, of his leadership and notes would be taken of those local branches and then given back to him and then he would sort of act upon that knowledge and, and do, I guess, dismantle the local branch or, or do do things that would stop any sort of grassroots challenge against against him. So when it comes to intra-party rule, it's very much authoritarian and, and very similar to Mendes, very similar to Demeter in the sense that he ruled it with an iron grip. And this... I guess I don't want to sort of flag going forward, but this throughout the, the 90s when he created D- DSP, Democratic Soul Party, it became extremely paranoia-like in terms of his his ruthless control over the DSP. But so he seemed to get worse as he got older. But in the 70s, yeah, I mean, you know, he was very, very much highly authoritarian, highly centralized power, CHP. So in the 70s, you have Demirat and Egypt who occupied the leadership of two of the main political parties, but yet they're both from opposing ideologies, both young, both ambitious, and both have a very strong rule over their over their party. You know, throughout the 70s, politics and their followers in society, it became this massive clash between these two key leading figures of Turkish politics. And it created a highly unstable and highly violent period in the 70s where it sort of brought about this, this coup in 1980. So after the 1980 coup, in 1983, there was a return to a democratic system, a multi-party system, and the famous figure of Turgut Özal came to power, the head of the Motherland Party, and very much somebody who, he, he was not really in the favour of the military at the time. His rise to power was seen as a bit of a surprise. It was not necessarily approved, although he did find ways to to coexist essentially with the, the military in subsequent years. And today, Turgut Özal is seen as a economic liberaliser, somebody who opened up the country to not just economic freedom, essentially, but a social liberaliser in many ways, uh, despite the fact that he came from kind of conservative roots. His party was in many ways a coalition that included many religious orders. And you also describe in the book, again, how he, there's a bit of nostalgia about Azal these days as being this kind of figure who opened up Turkey to post-modernity, essentially. But as you describe it in the book, he is also a figure who was very much a authoritarian character in government. He oversaw, as you describe in the book, this extraordinary expansion of government by decree. So there are some astonishing details in the book of these decrees that he passed without cabinet or parliamentary oversight. You say that at one point that Azal personally prepared and presented close to 30 governmental decrees to be signed without examination by the cabinet. Azal himself admitted that for six years, his government ministers had been asked to sign empty decrees, which he then filled out according to his own wishes. So basically like a dictatorship, essentially, with no parliamentary oversight, empty decrees that were signed off by government ministers that he basically filled out according to his own whims in subsequent days. So you you describe him as this kind of ruthless one-man figure within his party and as head of government, kind of absolutist, unaccountable figure who also used patronage and corruption and nepotism to cement his place in power. And, you know, he took these shortcuts, exploited loopholes and ignored moral codes whenever they stood in the way of implementing his vision or securing more power for himself. So 
Could you again talk about how this perhaps nostalgia that people have these days for Ozel in some circles, how that is perhaps uh, misleading and distracts from some of the anti-democratic measures that he took when he was actually in power after 1983? Yeah, again, much like the previous leaders, Ozel occupied a, a completely different constitutional environment compared to what was in the 70s, because we had a 1970, a coup in 1971. Again, there was changes to constitution. So we have this 1960, there's a new, completely new constitution, and you have Demidad, and again, it, it sort of, politics falls into sort of some sort of instability, chaos, left-right violence. 71, military coup steps in, forces Demidad to step down. Again, they amend the constitution. This time, they strip away the liberal character, a lot of the liberal characteristics of the constitution, because they see the liberal characteristics of the, the 1960 constitution as being a reason for 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 the rise in political violence and so forth. And so, 1980, it's it, this is again, it's a, a mass a rewrite of the constitution where the generals want to depoliticize society, completely break bonds between political parties and society because they blame those strong ties between politics and society for the ills of, of the 1970s, the violence between left and right, and so forth. So Ursula is now operating in an era where society is in a, in a straitjacket. And at the same time, all these previous um, leaders like Demirel, Ejevitz, Adabakan, Alprasan, Turkesh, key leaders throughout the 70s and key protagonists, you know, they, they played a very key role in the damage uh, and the violence that befell the country in the 70s. The junta bans these pre-1980 leaders from entering politics. So Ozal is actually operating in very calm waters. And yes, like you noted, that he was not the choice of the military to, to become a prime minister when civilian politics was able to resume. So because he was um, the economic czar through the junta period, he was able to talk General Kenan Evran, the leader of the, the junta, to letting him and his party run as the third party of the election. And he created this party called Anavatan, so Motherland Party. Obviously, he established it himself. He handpicked all these uh, politicians or right-wing or centre-right-wing or centrist politicians, centre-right politicians, also from religious parties from the 1970s. So he had this very much a mosaic political party that he created on his own. So he, in his mind, this party belonged to him because it was him that created this. And then when he won that election, surprisingly, by a massive margin to rule as a single party in government, he thought the party obviously owed him everything. And this was his psychology. And I sort of tap into this in that chapter. And yes, I mean, he actually admitted that for six years that he would get cabinet ministers. He actually admitted to himself that they would sign decrees. And a lot of the times, these ministers didn't know what was happening in their own ministries until they saw it in the, the fallen gazette. So that's how much he had, uh, he had control over that party. I think nearly half the laws that were made in that period of, of his, when he was prime minister were through decree. And that's a phenomenal amount of decrees. So that basically says is that he did not want to act with any checks on his power. He didn't want these policies and laws to be debated. He didn't want any hurdles. So the way he enacted it was through through decree. And there'd be no, no argument, no checks, no accountability in that sense. And many people in Turkey don't realize it, that Tugur Özal was a very, very authoritarian. The way he ran government was very authoritarian or autocratic. So he did a lot of things that were that bended the rule of law. 
And that was his his view of, of leadership, that I should be able to do what I think is necessary to achieve that vision for this country. Now, like with all, many leaders in, in Turkey's history and a lot of people, a lot of these leaders that I, I discussed, the way they went about it and the way they ran government was very highly undemocratic. And, and, and a lot of times it completely trampled on democracy in subsequently weakened de- democratic institutions and caused a lot of instability. Yes, Özal's initiatives and achievements did somehow promote pluralization of, of society, but that was not his main aim. And even his whole idea of liberalizing the democ- uh, liberalizing the economy really was to, to a certain extent because he, he sort of re- refused to relinquish power of the, uh, of the central bank when it came down to where he still wanted to have control, government have control over central bank and control its monetary policy. And as we know, in liberal economy, that that's actually goes against those ideals. And one yes. person who comes across rather well in the book, perhaps surprisingly to some listeners, is Ismet Inernu. Now, he obviously is a figure from the, the War of Independence years. You know, he followed on from Ataturk after Ataturk's death in 1938 became single party leader, president in that era, and then oversaw the transition to the multi-party system in 1950. And he is generally seen as this kind of almost dinosaur figure for many years who, you know, represented this older form of government, uh, an old way of doing things. But at crucial times, as you describe it in the book, he made decisions that actually were perhaps unexpected and were, in essence, democratic, because he, of course, was somebody who voluntarily handed over power in 1950, which perhaps wasn't a given for him to voluntarily uh, oversee this transition to a multi-party system, hand over pretty much ultimate authority that he had to rivals. But also you describe sort of lesser known episodes or less appreciated episodes in the 1960s, for example, when you describe him as having this kind of maturity to prevent greater military involvement in politics. He basically provided this firewall that prevented further coups from happening, and he pushed back against the military encroachment into the political sphere throughout the 1960s, whenever he had control or whenever he was able to do that. And also within the CHP, you talk about how he was open enough to hand over power within the party when he felt that power was slipping away from him after a democratic vote within the party to to edge of it, who we've talked about. And that was quite an atypical and democratic stance that he displayed at that point. So you describe him at these in these key sort of moments, he actually displayed this democratic spirit. That might be quite surprising for some people, because like I say, Inono has this kind of image as being this almost dinosaur figure, you know, not really somebody who was particularly successful in democratic politics either, but he was actually, in key moments, pretty impressive. Yeah, what Inono was pre-multi-party era, that's beyond the bounds of that book. What I can only show is these key moments where he chose to side with democracy as opposed to uh, you know, authoritarianism or for his own political interests or gains. So in 1950, when the CHP lost by a landslide, a lot of people in his party were pushing him to refuse the election, election results and maybe use the military to remain in power. And he refused to do so against the wishes of a lot of people in his party. And then in 1960s, after 1960 coup, there's always a specter of military coups happening because there was this 
constant factions within the middle and lower ranks of the military that were bored by these revolutionary ideas and they're preparing to, to undertake coups. And then, so the military itself was, there was always this threat of coups happening by middle ranking officers or lower ranking officers. And yeah, and there was two key attempts by the same person, Tala Aydemir, where you know, largely single-handedly brought down these two coup attempts by Talat Aydemir. Using his prestige in the military, he was able to, I guess, talk down Talat Aydemir and, and, and the faction of these officers that were preparing to undertake a coup of a very fragile democratic system. And then when we look at uh, someone like the election of Bilan Ejevit in 1973 in an intra-party vote to oust Ismet Inonu, you know, he peacefully handed over the reins of the party and, and removed himself from the party formally. I mean, yes, there's arguments that he was an old man at that stage, but it's, it fits within that pattern of him doing things at critical moments to side with democracy and democracy's survival as opposed to his own political gains. And, you know, and that was the point I wanted to make because a lot of reading of, of Ismet Inunu is highly critical of, of him as being undemocratic or, or someone that was pro-coup and pro-military rule by some quarters within and within academia or with, with analysts, political analysts. So, you know, and these key moments of his actions really stand out <laughs> compared to political leaders around him, his contemporaries and those that follow on, where at key moments they chose to side with their own political ambitions as opposed to saving the democratic system. And one thing that the book does really well is by outlining all these cases of major figures subverting democracy, centralising power around themselves as much as was possible within the structural constraints that they were operating in. It really does place Erdogan in this context. So there's a tendency, I think, in a lot of sort of media coverage, particularly abroad, to see Erdogan as this kind of figure who comes out of nowhere and almost bucks the trend and really does, in the way that he's gradually centralised power, sideline rivals and moved away from, you know, those early supposedly reformist years and more consensual years, people see that trajectory as sort of coming out of nowhere and being, you know, the first unique example of that in Turkish political history. And obviously that is not the case. And your book really does describe that very well. It puts him in that bigger context. Uh, as you say in the book, Erdogan's monopolization of power and denial of intra-party democracy is in keeping with the Turkish model of political leadership. Under Erdogan, the AKP operated as just another leader-dominated party. Erdogan is simply the most extreme manifestation of what is symptomatic of an ongoing political cultural crisis in Turkey, an unending cycle of authoritarian leadership. He did not emerge from a vacuum and is far from being unique in Turkish political history. So that kind of summarises the point that I'm making. Was that something that you were conscious of in the book, you know, sort of placing Erdogan in this much broader context that perhaps allows, gives us a bit more perspective when we're sort of assessing his position in Turkish political history? I think you touch upon something I really wanted to emphasise by writing this book. The reason I, I wrote such a, a study across 70 years of multi-party politics is that I find that, that if we just study what's happening today, we sort of missed the actual patterns we misinterpret or misanalyze, it's not accurate. I guess that's what I'm trying to say. So this is why I sort of undertook this such a long study, which goes across a long, long history, because it's it actually brings to life multi-party politics and, and, and these patterns that exist, but yet many, maybe many people don't don't realize has been occurring all along. And I think yes, I was very conscious of that, and you know the book is not 
about Erdogan. The book is about Turkish politics and, and these very much phenomenal figures of, of Turkish politics. You know, when you look at them, they're very larger-than-life characters. And Erdogan fits in this timeline. He's not unique. He hasn't just appeared. Turkey wasn't this model democracy pre-Erdogan, and it wasn't authoritarian or unstable just because there was the military as the arbiter of politics. You know, the instability, the centralization of power existed well before Erdogan. Erdogan is, the yes, indeed, he's the most extreme manifestation of that. Maybe it's because he was, he's been given 20 years in power and this is what happens when you're in 20 years in power and you are unchallenged by your own party. And if you are, then you remove those challenges. So Erdogan needs to be seen in this pattern. One aspect, another aspect of the book that I thought was interesting that I'd like to talk about is towards the end, you talk about some of the socio-cultural reasons or potential theories about why this kind of authoritarian politics thrives. And you talk about how the answers might lie in the values held in society. And you quote research that indicates that attitudes and values held by Turkish citizens show a democratic deficiency in line with that of the leaders. So attitudes conducive to democracy and democratization are held by actually a relatively limited number of citizens. Most citizens prefer to be governed by, quote, a strong leader who does not have to deal with parliament and elections. Workers in Turkey consider autocratic qualities in their leaders as a desired attribute, and they want leaders to demonstrate assertive and aggressive qualities. So this might actually be a controversial point for some, you know, the fact that we're almost pathologizing sort of characteristics in Turkish society as leading to these kind of qualities. But on a personal level, it does kind of chime with my own experiences. You know, when I, in my sort of interactions with, I don't know, unions or associations, foundations, businesses even, you know, you do see this recurring quality of they're very leader-dominated institutions from the top to the bottom of society. When the leader turns up, people's body language changes. They refer to the leader as, you know, Bashkan in, in ostensibly very democratic institutions. People, you know, they're always looking for the to the leader to sort of show direction, to have the last word on things. And that's just an expectation that is potentially socialized from a young age. And maybe that is one of the kind of deeper-rooted socio-cultural factors behind why this kind of model of authoritarian lead leadership right at the top of politics is such a recurring factor throughout Turkish modern political history. Yeah, so I sort of just left it for future studies, that, that passage at the end of the book, because it's something that, you know, I started to come across these key studies. And, you know, I think the one that you quoted there was from Yilmaz Esmer's book, Values in Turkish Society that he does, I think, annually on a regular basis. So I saw these, these studies, and it was something that never really occurred to me either. But once I sort of like started seeing these, this research, I'm like, oh, well, this can explain in parts why there's this constant cycle of these authoritarian or strongman-type leaders that come up in politics. And then, like as you noted, why does society consistently choose to vote for leaders or strong man type of leaders. There's a lot of research shows within society that in Turkey, people do want their leaders to be strong, authoritarian, and take arbitrary action when they need to take that action. When we think about Turkish politics, people bag Kemal Kılıçdaroğlu because they don't see him as strong enough to, to, to be competitive against Erdogan. Why? Because he has a softer demeanor. He doesn't bang his head on on the table. He's not this macho character. 
So people automatically think, well, well, he's not going to survive in, you know, in, in a competition against Aradwan. You need a strong man. You need another tough man to, to, to rise up against him. And this is the, this is the value uh, view. As much as people might say we want democracy, but yet when you look at their views towards political leaders, they, they actually want strong leaders to, to be competitive in the, in the political landscape. Yeah, I wonder if we could conclude by linking all these themes to the current election campaign. As you gesture there in that answer, we do have this very stark contrast between Erdogan as a you know long-running, domineering figure. When you vote for Erdogan, people have very fixed ideas about what they're going to get. And running up against him is Kilic Starola, this joint opposition candidate for years now. He's been trying to construct this coalition of multiple parties to stand on a united platform in some ways. So he's you know, been the head of the CHP since 2010. But in this latest guise, he's you know, tried to rally this coalition essentially together. And he's trying to make a virtue of that in the campaign by saying, you know, we'll, you know, this will be a contrast with Erdogan's leadership. And if you're sick of this one man rule, this is the remedy. And obviously one of the cliches over the years about Kirishwala is that he, you know, quote, lacks leadership qualities and is not the most charismatic figure. So he does present a very stark contrast with Erdogan. The question is, I suppose, you know, when you look at Turkish political history, when you look at what voters want and, you know, appear to value, have we reached that threshold where people have had enough and they're willing to turn 180 on this model of leadership that Erdogan appears to have run into the ground after 20 years? Is this the time where there is this kind of seismic change that people want? And if so, if that is the case, is Kilic Storoli the man who can spearhead that? Yeah, look, you know, Klitschel has been in the head of CHP since 2010. He's lost multiple elections and his only, I guess, electorally redeeming example is choosing the candidates that won the major cities in Istanbul, uh, sorry, in, in Turkey. So Istanbul, Ankara and other major sort of economic hubs in the country which where the opposition was successful. That's probably the only electoral victory they could hang his hat on. But regardless of how many elections he's lost, referendums, he's still remained in power. And he, he definitely has a strong hold over the CHP. We saw how he elbowed his way to become the presidential candidate. So he's a very, I guess, even though he's very soft-spoken and he doesn't, he doesn't seem to have very, uh, there's not any corruption or rumours of corruption in his, in his life or previous life, he definitely still, there's still elements in the way he, he has ran that party his own personal close clique of politicians in the central party apparatus. But of course, he's definitely not your archetypal strong man, authoritarian. Hopefully he, he is successful. He seems like a nice enough person. He says the right things. I mean, but I have to give a but because a lot of Turkish po- political leaders when they've been in opposition have said the phenomenally the right things. Everyone is a Democrat in opposition, but it's when they get into power it's a different story. And I think that's that's what I sort of try to get in my book. And I do hope if he is successful, that, you know, he continues through with, with his promises, with those um, democratic overtures. I think one way the opposition, if they do get into power, is to actually take immediate steps to create strong democratic institutions or rebuild these institutions that have been completely hollowed out and to create more mechanisms to pe- keep power accountable. 
to quote or, or to paraphrase Professor um, John Keane, who's one of the key thinkers of democratic theory, democracy is about keeping power humble. It's about keeping power accountable. And you need mechanisms to do just that job. And if the opposition, when they come into power, don't do that or don't take those strong steps in creating those strong institutions and mechanisms that keep their own power in check, then I think we've got to start being a little bit suspicious because nothing's going to change. All you're going to, you're going to have is the same system but a different figurehead. And, you know, and again, a lot of the power is going to be laid in his or her, her office. So, as I said, I, I do hope this is a watershed and the book ends with Erdogan, this authoritarian pattern. But my suspicion is, even if the opposition win, Klistorola becomes president, that there's, I guess, relative stability for a couple of years. And then, then the six-party alliance that made up the, the key opposition bloc disintegrates and it becomes this very much a, a highly competitive, a highly fractured political landscape like we had in the 1990s, where people are very ruthlessly competing for power and these patterns, you know, undemocratic patterns, authoritarian patterns re-emerge in like after a few years of stability. I think, you know, when we look at the history, when, when I point, like when we look at the 1990s, for me, this could be more of reality, more chance of becoming real than a permanent sort of stability of Turkish politics. So. I'm not sure, you know, it's one of those things, but there's a definite chance of that, that after a few years of stability, that it sort of can revert back to those old patterns. That was Tezcan Gumish. Many thanks to him for joining for episode number 192. Remember, we need your support to keep Turkey Book Talk going, and you can give that support by joining as a Turkey Book Talk member on Patreon. Membership gets you a 35% discount on all Turkey Ottoman history books published by IB Taurus and Bloomsbury, transcripts of every interview, transcripts of the entire archive of interviews, access to an archive of over 200 book reviews written by me, and links via email to articles and other content related to the subject of each episode. For all that, just go to Turkey Book Talk's Patreon account and pledge $3, €3 Euros, or £2.50 per episode. Do also rate the podcast or write a positive review wherever you listen. Follow via our website turkeybooktalk.com, our Twitter, Facebook or Instagram accounts or all of them. Recommend Turkey Book Talk to a friend or a foe and I always enjoy hearing from listeners so do send any feedback or abuse to williamjohnarmstrong at gmail.com. Let me remind you here once again to check out a friend of Turkey Book Talk, Turkey Recap. Turkey Recap is, among other things, a weekly email newsletter that brings together all major developments in Turkey over the past seven days, links to interesting articles and some excellent puns. They've got a Slack channel for signed up members who want more, and they also publish high quality, original, on the ground reporting. Just go to turkeyrecap.com and follow the links there to subscribe. The next episode of Turkey Book Talk will be published in a couple of weeks, actually just two days after the 14th of May election. Obviously, we don't know the results at this stage. Things may get absolutely crazy or they might not. In light of that, our next episode is going to steer clear as much as possible from current politics. It's a very good episode, though, with translator Aaron Aji talking about the great author Ferit Edgu. Hopefully you'll have enough headspace after the election to join us. But until that episode in a couple of weeks, stay sane and thank you very much for listening. Thank you.